Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to the Football by Football Podcast. Welcome back to the Football by Football Podcast. This is Matt Chatham, your host, joined as always with Brady Quinn, here to do the college football breakdown. Brady, how's it going, man? It's going well, Matt. It's always a pleasure talking with you. We've talked a couple times this week now, don't we? I know. It's crazy. Just, uh, you know, each and every time I remember where you're at and I'm up here and it's getting colder. We're picking apples and you're sitting on a beach in Florida. So you're just my you're my you're my weekly reminder of what it could be like had I not played for the organization I did. <laughs> Anyhow, let's dive right into this, Brady. Let's get after it. Uh, a, a pretty exciting weekend of stuff a week ago. We're, we're sort of reaching the midway point here in the college football uh, sort of season-long schedule and Michigan Michigan State one of the biggest stories of the week obviously uh from a special team standpoint uh you know that's that's more my background uh seeing sort of that heartbreaker you know for the young kid from Michigan to to drop the punt and have the thing in the way it did uh I I remember a situation on campus personally for us when we had a kid who missed an extra point that cost us the game and we we you know it's something where I'll still see this guy years and years later and it's the first thing I think, I think, and I'm not going to say his name in the air. I don't, I don't want to feel bad for him, but you know, it's just, it's just yeah. one of those moments where you saw the look on Harbaugh's face. You saw the look on a lot of the fans there in, in, in Michigan and the faces of Ann Arbor. I mean, I just, you looked at him and said, Oh, it's like the, you know, like their dog had died and Michigan state's obviously elated. Uh, it's still tough to get a win in the row, but that just felt like a giveaway. Uh, can you just talk about sort of what you saw there in that Michigan, Michigan state game? Does it make you feel any different about either of those two teams? No, it doesn't. I think, uh, you know, the way Michigan played actually, I guess it probably changed my mind a bit uh, seeing how well they played against Michigan State, although Michigan State's battled a number of injuries this season, a little bit of a war with uh, attrition. But, you know, when we talk about that play, uh, there's a few things to point out. One, Michigan could have tried to run the clock out uh, a little bit more where they wouldn't even have been in that circumstance in the first place. The other thing is, you know, the, the long snap was off. It wasn't an accurate snap. And right. that kind of was the start of, you know, the, the bobble, which then turned into, you know, the go-ahead touchdown for Michigan State. Uh, but I would like to point out one thing, because I think this is happening a lot in college football right now. A lot of teams are going to this rugby style of punting. And yep. what happens is you're not protected as a punter once you leave outside the pocket. And I think it allows a lot of special teams players to then rush more aggressively, knowing that they can run into the kicker after attempting to block the punt and really have no consequences because they're not protected the same as if he stays in the pocket and tries to punt. So, I guess the play call, even though he's a rugby-style guy where there's no one back, to not sit there and just try to kick it quick and get it out uh, probably ends up hurting him in that case. Uh, but, you know, the, that's why I'm not, I guess, a huge fan of the rugby style in general because there's been a number of block kicks this year, and it seems like they're always coming against these rugby-style kickers. 
It's an interesting point. I, I, I didn't think you were going to go there, but it, you know, we, I, I actually played with this guy named Ben Graham, uh, who was an Aussie Aussie rules guy over. He's like a rock star. You, you say Ben Graham in, in Australia and it, it's sort of Michael Jordan esque, at least in their game. And he came over to the States, uh, played, uh, was our punter for years, ended up having a, a 10 year ish career in the NFL as a punter. And Ben was a stud at that. One of the first guys, this is back in like that two, five, 2005, six, seven range, somewhere in there. Uh, and it kind of became a thing. And there's, there's several of these guys in the NFL now. And I, I think it helped sort of some of the people in college sort of adopt that style where situationally, I think it can really help you. Uh, and there's other spots where, as you mentioned, where it doesn't really fit. The other thing I noticed is that the, the, the goofy punt formation, which to me, I, I absolutely hate. I like the traditional you know, show an offensive line, have a couple wings, have two extended gunners. Uh, I don't like when they put sort of the, the little mini offensive line behind the line, because I'm telling you, in the event that there are any ball handling issues, as there was on that play, you're right. The guys are charging hard, almost as if they're charging into a wedge, like on an old kickoff play. And there's really very little margin for error. And I just think conceptually, it doesn't make a ton of sense to put those guys back there because you're con- they're back there to contact at like five yards into the backfield. And then they have to go cover the punt. Why, why are you putting them back there? It's really easy to just do it traditionally and still get out. I think they believe that they built this wall that you can't now block, but all a guy has to do is hit it a little bit and get a hand up and you've affected the punt as well. It's just, again, and that's not a knock on Michigan because Michigan's one of half the teams in college football that are doing that now. And I just, to me, it's, there's a lot of silliness that went on in that play. Some of the stuff you mentioned, some other things I, that they always stand out to me where, you know, some of this stuff is, um, is avoidable. And I, I would, I would not, I'm not going to let the snapper off the hook too much because he did keep it within his frame. He had to step to his side. Uh, and you're right. It was not a perfect snap, but I, I think if I'm in that special teams room, we're still just saying, dude, catch it, get the kickoff. But there could be other protection issues to help it. In case there's a bobble, he still has time to pick it up and get the thing off. Even if he kick it 15, 20 yards, it's not a score, you know. So, yeah, anyhow, he, moving on. An incomplete oh, pass would have helped in that case, you know. Right, right, exactly. All righty, moving on here, Alabama. We're going to go Bama bound here. So, uh, this, this was an interesting week to me where – we had a chance to sort of learn a little something. We're always talking about on our NFL show about sort of what we learned. I think this was a week where I had been willing to sort of try. I don't know. I don't know how to state this exactly. I understood that Georgia was sitting out there and was going to peak at some point and was going to impress people. And then they would flop. We knew that Alabama being a part of that. I still wanted to say, was that more learning something about Georgia and less about Bama? Then Bama goes out and has a good week. They do last week. And all of a sudden they say, okay, it's more of a two horse race. Now LSU gets past Florida, Florida. We know is decimated a bit, had to change a quarterback, but I think we start to see cream of the crop trying to rise. The, the, the Mississippi schools, I'm, I'm sort of done with them. Maybe that's just me. Uh, but I'm starting to see some separation where this looks like it might be Bama. LSU sits there. I know they I – think, I think LSU's got Western Kentucky or something like that this week. So they've got a couple weeks until they meet one another. But I felt separation in the SEC. How, how do you feel about things going on down there? Oh, I feel the exact same way, Matt. I mean, I really felt like – Texas A&M probably had its best chance when you're talking about on-paper matchup-wise and statistically speaking, going up against Alabama at home in College Station with a 12th man. The problem was they got off to a bad start right away. They fell behind uh, quarterback Kyle Allen through three interceptions in the game, all went back for touchdowns. Mika Fitzpatrick, the cornerback, had two. 
Eddie Jackson, the safety, had one himself. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And then you know what happens? Alabama just dominates you physically, and they run the football. Derrick Henry had 32 carries, 260-some yards, and, and I think a couple touchdowns. And, and that's where it makes it, you know, Nick Saban really makes it so hard for you to come from behind uh, because they, they eat up that time of possession. They're able to physically wear you down on both sides of the football, and they basically just dictate the tempo and play their game. Uh, so it was a bit it was a bit surprising to me that Texas A&M really came out and laid an egg. I thought Kyle Allen was playing great this year. Um, you know, John Chavis, defensive coordinator that came over to Texas A&M, uh, has done a fantastic job. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, you, you can't will those guys uh, to be able to stop a powerful running back like Derrick Henry or not get pushed off the ball the way the Alabama offensive line really controlled that game. So to me, Alabama is for real. They're the team to beat. I think when I look at this matchup, uh, them coming uh, eventually going to be coming up to play LSU. Uh, and if they can find a way to stop Leonard Fournette, uh, which no one's been able to do all season, I think they'll be able to win easily because I don't have a lot of trust in quarterback Brandon Harris uh, being able to throw the ball efficiently enough, and particularly versus an Alabama secondary that's proven what they can do once they get the football in their hands. Well, it's interesting that you make the Derrick Henry point because it was something that I had sort of jotted down in my notes for the week, uh, watching sort of, uh, you know, us hit this midpoint and, and conference games starting to go on. One of the things that really hopped out to me was the really great back performances or either at least running game, I shouldn't say just the backs. You mentioned Ford. Fournette, we mentioned Henry, uh, looking around the league, or excuse me, around the country, uh, Christian McCaffrey out in Stanford has that monster night, Iowa back has a huge day, 200 yards or whatever it was, and in uh, in relief of Kanzari, who's gone out now with an injury, uh, there's a lot of situations, Utah, who's been more balanced on offense, we knew their defense was going to be great, but I think a lot of the stories uh, that have sort of percolated here in college football surround some of the teams that have the quarterback can spread and do that if they need to, but there gets that moment, as you mentioned, sort of an Al- with Alabama in the second half where they, they're just going to wear you down, and they have the, they have the ability to pound you. Uh, I thought it was interesting to see some of the more elite running games in the country start to help these teams separate. Yeah, I mean, it's going back to that old-school football, but really that's kind of what the SEC has been. I mean, there really hasn't been a prolific – uh, spread style offense besides maybe when Cam Newton was with Gus uh, Malzahn um, okay, you know, down yeah. in Auburn. Um, that, that's really the only one that kind of comes to mind first that I can think of. Um, but maybe Man- that, maybe Manzel, the Manziel thing, the Manziel thing a couple yeah, years ago. Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah. yeah, they just came over to the SEC. So I guess, but even then, you know, I, as much as people wanted to praise Johnny Manziel for winning a Heisman, um, yeah, then they beat Alabama, I think, what is his freshman year, his redshirt freshman year. But Beyond that, you know, they really kind of struggled. His last year, they're eight and five, um, so, right. so it wasn't as if they really made a huge impact on the SEC. I think it's when Nick Saban has to go up against some of these other spread teams. You know, now that we're talking about a college football playoff, or we're talking about you know playing them in bowl games and so forth. That's where I think uh, he gets a little worrisome, and in particular when you're talking about you know some of the players, um, you know, the quarterbacks that are leading some of these Big Twelve teams, how effective they have been this season, and then some of the Pac-12 teams as well. Well, okay, you mentioned the pack, so we can kind of swing over there for a second and take a peek. I think, yeah, obviously, with your Notre Dame team knocking off USC, uh, I came away from the game saying, good job, Notre Dame. Nice, uh, solid win. Was relatively unimpressed with USC. I thought there, was, there, were, there, were, there were situations in that game where I felt 
USC or excuse me, Notre Dame looked more talented at some spots. And I haven't said that in a long time about Notre Dame. I, 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 I've been a fan of sort of the way they've been able to churn out offense and defensive linemen, the occasional tight end, your, your buddy Nicholas, there's been talent at Notre Dame, but there were, there were times in that game where I felt specialists were not overmatched by USC. And I understand sort of the recruiting pipeline they have there. Uh, and maybe, maybe scheme is changing this and maybe sort of the disarray that they're in They're They're just not organized and things don't look as good, but there was, there was a moment in that game where I thought, you know what, Notre Dame's not overmatched here. This is not just a better coach team with Kelly and they're not having the coaching issues. I felt like they were on an even playing field. And I, I think that's more of an indictment, less of a, a, you know, pat on the back to Notre Dame and more of an indictment on what's going on in the pack as a whole. I, USC has not been the team I thought they were. And again, that's maybe that's not fair to say, and the, they're going through the turmoil they've had it with uh, with Sark leaving. But I came away from that thinking, okay, if, you, if this is USC, then I need to look back through the pack and see what I think about all these other teams. Stanford, who has that ugly 16-6 loss in the, to begin the season against Northwestern. UCLA, which I actually really liked about three weeks ago. And I know you've covered them and, and know a lot more about them than I do. But watching them just get run through by Stanford last week made me think, okay, wait a minute. Maybe UCLA is not what I thought they were. And I go back and look through their schedule and I'm thinking, oh, wait, they haven't really beaten anyone. Uh, sort of just your thoughts, your feelings, pack as a whole. Obviously, we know Utah is kind of dominating the South there. Have Has your mind changed on any sort of overall perception there? We just went through that and never mentioned Oregon. So so how are you feeling on the pack? Um, well, look, I think there's a lot more parity in the Pac-12 this year than any other year. I mean, you addressed USC. Part of the reason why I feel like you, you may have felt like there was somewhat of um, maybe a level playing field as far as the talent between Notre Dame and USC was because this is really the first year they've just gotten back after all the sanctions that they were, um, they were hit with after the whole Reggie Bush deal and everything. They've just now come back to full strength this season. So I think it's just taken them some time, uh, not only to be able to recruit the way they'd like to, but to be able to develop those kids. And obviously they're going through a lot more um, considering all the coach changes they've had, the, the interim head coaches from Kiffin to Ogeron to, to Sarkeesian now again with Helton who, who took over after Ogeron, Ogeron was fired. So um, they've just had to deal with a lot of changes. And uh, I, I don't necessarily know if it's quite the lack of, of talent. I think you see they've got some, it's just a matter of, right. uh, you know, dealing with all those things moving around them. But you're right. I mean, when USC isn't at the, the top of the elite uh, of college football, I think it says something a little bit about the PAC 12 Oregon as well. We talked about, you know, I think in that case, it's more of an interesting thing that to think that we were just thought they were a system place where any quarterback could come in and, and run that system up there at Oregon and be just as successful and not, not, you know, discounting to all the other players they lost on the defensive line and at the cornerback position on defense as well. So um, Oregon's clearly not the same team. Um, I think the most interesting team in the PAC 12 is Utah in part because they're, they're a program. They're a team where a lot of these kids, are going to end up staying there for all four years of their eligibility. They're not going to leave early. Right. Um, head coach Kyle Woodingham has done a fantastic job of building his program kind of quietly out there in Salt Lake, and he's got it exactly where he wants it, where they play solid defense, stopping the run and putting a lot of pressure on opposing QBs, and then really running the football, hammering away with Devontae Booker up there at altitude. Travis Wilson adds in on that rushing attack, and, and he's been good enough passing, I think, for them to get by. I'm, I'm curious as they start to play a little bit of a, a tougher stretch down the way to see if they'll be able to uh, beat teams throwing the football uh, because that's something that Travis Wilson has struggled with at times, and they don't necessarily have the most talent on the outside either. Uh, and then finally you talked about UCLA. 
a team that's just done dealt with so many injuries across the board. It's it's beginning to get ridiculous. I mean, they lost Eddie Vandergoes, right. a standout tackle early in the season. They lost Miles Jack uh, to it in practice, I think, to a torn ACL. Um, they were even moving around guys from wide receiver over to cornerback and Mossy Johnson, who he then tore his ACL um, in trying to transition from wide receiver to cornerback. So. Um, they're, they're battling uh, a war of attrition as far as you know injuries go, and and Josh Rosen, he's a true freshman. I think a lot of people saw him right. early on and thought, well, this kid's gonna you know be a Heisman contender as a true freshman. That's just not the case. Um, I think it's too tough to adapt to the college football landscape as a true freshman, um, not necessarily having uh, down their offense quite yet, even though he was an early enrollee. And, but but I will say this: he plays much better at home than on the road and they are home this week. Um, so I, I still think they've got a chance, but they obviously need a lot of help in the Pac-12 South because Utah so far has been defeated, and they're going to have to drop one, whereas UCLA has already dropped two games in the Pac-12. Yeah, that's a fair point. I, I, just to, to piggyback off your uh, your UCLA point with them being so decimated, we've also seen that it, with TCU and their ability to sort of battle through, but the one thing they have is a veteran quarterback in Trayvon Boykin as opposed to – the situation there at UCLA where the dude's just a young guy. So I can kind of, I can kind of give them an asterisk and kind of let them grow and see where the things go. But as you mentioned, you're down to, so we'll see. It just makes me at least want to go back and do the comparative thing, especially as we near the first release of this playoff stuff here in a couple of weeks. It, it, it just makes me wonder, you know, I think we went through this last year when we had the first round of the playoffs where a lot of sort of the, the pole position stuff, where you start, really, really aids people. And then all of a sudden you find out at the end, wait a minute, Ole Miss isn't that good. You know, you get towards the end of the wait a minute, Mississippi State wasn't what we thought they were. Uh, but now we sit with Stanford at 10. Uh, and Stanford sort of had, I guess, the good fortune of having that really ugly loss to, uh, to, to Northwestern on week one, almost, you know, comparable to a year ago where Ohio State had their ugly Virginia Tech thing. And it was far enough in people's sort of rear view that I think they, they, were, they were given – credit for being a different team than they were on that particular day. Northwestern has an incredible defense typically, uh, but a weekend ago, I would beat the pants off of them uh, much the same way. They beat them 40 to 10, much the same way Michigan had, had done the week before to, to vault themselves in sort of the national conversation. How do you sort of make sense of who Stanford is relative to who they've beaten and not sort of try to figure out where Iowa might be in this formula as well, or even Michigan, who before we said we were, we were feeling a little better about. How do you try to take that sort of comparative, uh, yeah, similar opponent thing and figure out where some of these teams should lie? You know, it, it's tough. I go back to that, that Stanford game week one versus Northwestern, and I, what I think happened was um, they might have taken that game a bit lightly, maybe taking some things for granted, on the road versus a pretty solid, stout uh, defensive team, Northwestern. But the other issue I would say was they really didn't know how to use Christian McCaffrey, who's basically become a bona fide Heisman candidate now. He's got 1,500 yards from scrimmage, running, passing, returning, um, what, seven touchdowns on the season. I mean, he's he's really turned it on since that game. He only had 12 carries in that game. And then uh, he had, I think, five touches out of the backfield uh, catching football. So, I don't necessarily know they knew exactly how to use them or how they were going to implement them into their strategy. I think they, as they you know, started to catch stride, you start to see Stanford now steamrolling teams with this power running game with right. McCaffrey either as the running back, either as the wildcat back, um, or sometimes they'll split them out. Um, but that's kind of been their style of football. I think the most worrisome thing for me is um, quarterback Kevin Hogan. 
Um, it just seems like he's got this great win-loss record. He, he seems to statistically be pretty solid for the most part. Obviously, he's a smart player. Um, but he doesn't ever shine in the big games. Um, it seems like he almost kind of hides from the spotlight. And I'm curious to see, based on the fact that they're in position now to make a run, that if he can go and beat Oregon, where they got to play Oregon November 14th, they got to play Cal at home November 21st, and then they got to play uh, Notre Dame. So they've got three games to finish the season at home. All those teams are very capable of competing with them and beating them. And I actually think they got uh, Washington at home this week. That actually might, besides Notre Dame, uh, to end the season, that's actually another game and another team that I think has the possibility to pull off the upset. You know, Washington beat USC at USC a couple weeks ago. And Chris Peterson's probably one of the most underrated coaches as far as doing the most with the least. They've, and they've got a linebacker named Travis Feeney. This kid is an absolute uh, freak. He'll run all of the, over the field. You know, he's going to be one of those guys that's going to shadow McCaffrey. I think wherever he goes, he's going to go okay. with him. And he's going to have a beat on him. So I'm curious to see that matchup this week. Um, and I really think Stanford could be on upset alert in part because, you know, just something about Kevin Hogan. He just never seems to shine in those big moments or be able to, he's never able to get Stanford over the hump. Um, but that's just my take on, you know, his career thus far. It's interesting that you, that you say that. And I, I was going back and trying to take a longer look at Kevin Hogan, uh, just because this seems to happen each and every year. I think it happened with me with Goff a few weeks ago, where it's a guy that was a little off my radar. And then all of a sudden you see sort of that, that profile piece because they have a big game, game coming up. You, you see a few tweets or somebody writes a column on ESPN or Fox or something like that to bring your attention to a guy and say, Hey, here's how he would grade as a pro. And oh, you know, had a big week last week, that kind of thing. All of a sudden, they're on the radar. Kevin Hogan has gotten that treatment. The last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of talk with him. There's been a, hey, he should be a Heisman guy now, or he's a legitimate Heisman candidate. You see a few YouTube videos, and all of a sudden he pops up and, and, and with, with getting a few votes in sort of the Heisman watch stuff. And one thing I noticed about him is he has a really long release. You know, he has that sort of baseball-y kind of over-the-top thing where it's good. Dip. And, again, that's not the end of the, end of the world. That, that doesn't mean he can't be a pro. It doesn't mean he can't have an excellent – college season but I watch a lot of his highlight tapes and a lot of it is that kind of formulaic stuff real quick uh play action handoff for that power running game that you talk about with McCaffrey very impressive but then a really quick read that comes right off it it's downfield passing it's not it's not necessarily uh it, it is pro style stuff it's not west coast offense sitting back and just throwing slant routes but it, it, he's certainly not sitting back in the pocket and doing the overly pro style stuff where he's reading the whole field and going three, three or four reads in. So I, I'm probably in the same place you are where I'm in a holding pattern where I want to see him challenged. I want to see him really, really put it on someone in a big game. And, and, and I'm probably sitting there saying, eh, yeah, I don't know. And, now that, and that's an independent conversation where he'll be as a pro that's different. But I think in the back of people's minds, you know, Andrew Luck, Andrew Luck, Andrew Luck, Oh, this guy's big and he's had some success and he actually runs pretty well too. Uh, and, Maybe it's just a little bit of a overreaction, but uh, one real quick thing here before we, we sort of transition out of last week's game, I have to bring them up. I've, I've planted the seed here a couple of times in the show, but I mentioned Iowa for this reason. We've, we've hopped right over them and we should have for the last several weeks because all they had on their docket was a, was a close win against Pittsburgh. And I think at the time I'm thinking eh, Pittsburgh, you know, maybe a decent ACC team, maybe they're bowl team, maybe they're not, but that's not going to move the dial. 
Uh, they beat Wisconsin, uh, but they beat them in an ugly game, 10 to 6, you know. But to win at Wisconsin is doing something. But I think with in the absence of Melvin, Melvin Gordon, you know, some, you know, Stave, I don't know what the opinion of him is, is sort of middling quarterback in the Big Ten. It's just considered a eh, year with Wisconsin. So maybe that doesn't mean much either. But then they blow out Northwestern. And I'm starting to think, okay, this is a team that's built like the one you were just talking about in Stanford. Now, maybe there's a there's a few spots where they don't have quite the athletes, but they're a pro style team. Uh, they they definitely can run the football, and I think they proved that in the last couple of weeks. Where they've really read, ridden hard on this running game. C.J. Beathard's a guy who has a little more impro- improvisational skills, and they've got this crazy easy schedule on the way out, with really the only test being Nebraska. So how how do you see? I know the opinion of Iowa isn't terribly good, and I think I read that from you in some of our past conversations. But in the event that they advance to the to the Big Ten championship and they happen to catch Michigan State as opposed to Ohio State, who's got all those athletes and can spread you out and just simply out-athlete you, what's the possibility of Iowa as an outside track with a Big Ten upset ending up in the playoff? Is that so crazy? I, uh, I, I can't. Yeah, it's crazy to me in part because of – a couple things. Their strength of schedule is going to be frowned upon. Um, okay. I actually think they could be almost like the Florida State of last year, where you've got a team that that went thir- what thirteen and zero, and then they end up being third in the college football playoff ranking. Right. Um, obviously, right. that's telling you that the committee is going to look at that Big Ten strength of schedule and say, okay, who has Iowa beaten that was really worth anything? And when you're looking at it so far. Illinois State, that's not going to do it. Iowa State, no. Pittsburgh, they're not a bad ACC team. Wisconsin was an ugly game, and we don't really know how good they, they'll be and how, how well they'll finish. Um, so, and they beat Northwestern, who, yeah, I think you could say Northwestern obviously beat Stanford, who looks to be a pretty promising team, um, and was able to battle uh, with Michigan. But beyond that, I mean, we'll see how they finish out the rest of the season. I mean, you talked about at Nebraska being one of their, one of their tough games. I think Indiana, too. Uh, playing down Bloomington, that could be possibly upset alert. But beyond that, I think Iowa, as an undefeated team, now, yeah, granted, maybe if they beat Michigan State or maybe if they beat Ohio State in the Big Ten Championship game, maybe they could make a case. But I actually think that this could be the year where the Big Ten ends up being having a team left out if Iowa ends up being the team to represent them, even if they're undefeated. I think you're going to end up seeing an undefeated Big 12 team making in over them, um, a, a little bit because they're left right. out last year, but I think both because – TCU and Baylor, that's what it's going to come down to, and they've both been dominant this season. I think you look at the right. ACC, you're going to have to be battling with a Clemson or Florida State is going to be undefeated most likely, winning the ACC. Um, and then the SEC is going to get a team in. That's just you know, bottom line. Now, where it gets craziest is that the Pac-12 doesn't have Utah come away or Stanford out of the Pac-12 North doesn't come away uh, if they come away with more than one loss. If you're talking about a two-loss Pac-12 champion – that's where I think Iowa could end up getting in if this scenario plays out the way we're talking about. Um, so, look, there's a lot of football to be played left. Um, I don't think yes, Iowa <laughs> being able to hold on either. Um, I, I think really if there was an upset alert for me, I'd be, I'd be looking out for that matchup versus Indiana and Bloomington. People can call me nuts, but um, just watch and see how that game ensues. I mean, Indiana's played Ohio State tough this season. Uh, I think they easily could go, and go or, you know, at home uh, beat Iowa. Well, I, I agree with you that there's a ton to go. And having been a long-time Iowa fan and growing up out there, I know enough to think that anything is resolved yet. I guess just the thing in my head of watching them and, and the reason to discount them in the last several years and the reason nationally you could and should is because with the right matchup with the wrong set of athletes, they would be screwed. They play such a, they play such a, a deliberate 
slow pace, big pound it down. And with the right sort of system, they just get walked out of the building. Problem is they've got this Akram Wall. I hope I'm saying his name, the Wadley kid, the, the kid that came in for Kanzaria when he got hurt, has a huge week a week ago. All of a sudden they got these little dudes on the field. They got the 5'10", 185 yard backs and the 5'10", 195 wide receivers, not the big slow guys. So they have an explosive element where if they catch the right team, I just think maybe. It'd be interesting conversation for you and I to have a month or a month and a half from now if Stanford does win out and has that one loss and it's to Northwestern and Iowa has the clean record with with potentially the win against either Ohio State or Michigan State. And then again, that's far-fetched. But it, I think that would be a compelling argument to make because if all things are laid on the table and they end up with those wins, you're probably doing what you mentioned. You're probably cheering for Northwestern to do more uh, to make sure that's a, that ends up actually being a quality win. You, you cheer for Wisconsin to continue to win, uh, to clean up their early season loss, as they did a year ago where they had the ugly loss to LSU early. People write them off. They win through. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Wisconsin was a good win, so they probably need a lot yeah. of help. But it's at least it's at least one of the more surprising, I think, developments yeah. at least in the first half of college football. Well, the other thing to look at there too, Matt, is they're going to look at common opponents. So you better believe if it comes down to Stanford and Iowa, the two teams they're trying to decide on, Iowa's going to get the edge. Well, not only because um, they'll be undefeated, but I think also because one of those wins will be coming against Northwestern, where Stanford lost Northwestern. So I would think they'd get the edge in that case. Uh, but, again, it, it all comes down to how that committee views the conference and really the schedule of Iowa as a whole. If they even think they could compete with the likes of teams coming out of the SEC, the ACC, um, and, and the Big 12, uh, which may be tough. Right. You know, and, and just want to right. touch on one thing that kind of struck me, too, when we were talking about Stanford and Kevin Hogan real quick. Not to go back yep. to it, but, you know, I was thinking he's kind of a game manager. Like, he's, he's kind of a game manager at the college football level that no one really talks about. That seems like a term that gets thrown around a lot in the NFL. But based on the style of play at Stanford and Christian McCaffrey and what he's able to provide in the running game, that's essentially what Kevin Hogan is. Um, so it would be, I'll be curious to see um, what evaluators think of him uh, after this year as he comes out into the 2016 NFL draft. Well, we have that sort of uh... – Ability there, thank you so much for the layup, uh, to sort of pivot to this quarterback conversation where I think Ohio State is going through a lot of the same kind of conversations. Do you go with the guy that you can trust to basically execute all the elements of the OSU offense, which at least Urban Meyer has determined that JT Barrett might be that guy because he's a little better, just slightly so much better with his legs, which that's always been such a big element of that offense. And you can take a little more advantage of Elliott if the guy handing off and potentially pulling it from the belly has the ability as well. We know how big Cardell Jones' arm is, but it's just a little bit tick less of athleticism feel like more you know world is your oyster with that offense with Barrett in there looks like they've leaned and are going to now go with JT but I don't think it's necessarily putting Cardell on the shelf for the year it's something they could probably revert to if they needed to and it wouldn't be terribly controversial how do you see that fleshing out is it odd how they've kind of handled the situation and is leaning on JT now the right one yeah, I think this should have been the, the decision coming into the season, but here's why it wasn't. It all comes down to where Cardell Jones is from. Cardell Jones is from Cleveland, Ohio. He went to the, the, the Ginn Academy, which is essentially a pipeline for athletes in the Northeast Ohio area to go down to Ohio State. If, if Ginn okay. sounds familiar to you, it's because Ted Ginn Jr., his son, was the outstanding uh, wide receiver and kickoff returner, um, still playing in the NFL now at the Carolina Panthers, but his father is actually the coach. He was at Cleveland Glenville, and then he went to created this Ginn Academy. And you better believe there's a solid amount of players 
from both schools that ended up going to Ohio State, and there's a large influence there. So I think Urban Meyer did not want to bite the hand that's been feeding him in recruiting and wanted to go with Cardell Jones and give him the opportunity. And he could make a case because he had three great games um, that were pretty pivotal when you talk about Ohio State winning a national championship with the Big Ten championship semifinal and final game. So he could make that argument. But unfortunately, here's what you have to go back to is, what made Urban Meyer in the first place decide that JT Barrett should have been ahead of Cardell Jones at the beginning of last year? Well, the, probably the greater body of work where he saw both quarterbacks practice and prepare, and at that point in time, he deemed that JT Barrett was the better player. JT Barrett's always been the better player. He's more refined in the passing game. He's a little bit better athlete, and it didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me besides the fact of recruiting why Urban Meyer would have gone with Cardell Jones. That or he thought his team was so good he could see what happens with Cardell, switch them both, and then make a change like this if he needed to because they're that good and they could still remain undefeated uh, while he's still trying to figure out this quarterback scenario. But that's what I think has taken place. Uh, but I'm glad they finally come to uh, the right decision because, to me, JT Barrett seems to run that offense uh, to a T the way it's supposed to be run. He's always on point with his, his progressions and his reads. And we're talking about a kid who was voted captain of the Ohio State football team as a sophomore. That says something right. about the leadership skills of, of this kid. Yeah, and I don't know if this is a perfect analogy, uh, but because of the style of offense and because of what I've watched Rex Ryan try to do with the Buffalo Bills defense or offense, excuse me, they went through training camp with this Tyrod Taylor, EJ Manuel thing. And EJ does remind me a little bit of Cardell because he's so big. It's almost like a Dante Culpepper just rocket for an arm, but just, just a monster dude. He's got nifty feet, but he's not an overwhelming runner. Uh, now, again, JT's a much bigger guy than, than Tyrod, but the thing I like about Tyrod is he can do everything by and large that, that EJ could, but he has a little more movement skills and he's just a little more crisp with the intermediate and the early read stuff. It's almost as if they went with the guy that we think can do everything really well as opposed to falling for the temptation of just that one amazing downfield shot that Cardell can hit or, or EJ Emanuel in this case. I think it's the right decision as well. I'm with you that I understand the conflict from the conflict. You, you just taught me about the recruiting aspect of it. I thought just more from the how do you how do you rationalize to a fan base the guy that you just saw holding up a national championship trophy doesn't get the start to start it off. It's just such a tough spot to be in. But I think he has the ammo after a couple mediocre or just modest we'll say starts in the last several weeks to where he I think he has the juice to go ahead and make the move and he'll probably be able to get with it and get away with it excuse me so I'm going to go with a lighter topic here before on uh, we've got two quick things I wanted to touch on before we finished up and I, I'm not sure if you saw this story during the week but we obviously know with 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 Greer going down there in Florida there was a loss of the quarterback situation but they also lost a kicker Brady did you hear this part about where the the, the Florida Gators are actually holding on camp campus an open tryout for kickers uh, <laughs> Jorge Powell I, I, I left his left the LSU game and had a leg injury you're down there what, what's going on are you, are you are you throwing your hat in the ring and you go kick at Florida so you can get a job no I, I I've actually not <laughs> heard that although I, I may try to go down there and see if um, maybe Jim McElwain will, will give me an opportunity uh, to there you go my eligibility but no, I, I, I did not actually hear this story yet, and although it's funny. It's usually you end up just getting a, a kicker um, out of the soccer team, and that's usually how that ends up working, although I don't necessarily know that Florida has a men's soccer team because of Title IX, so that could be the biggest yeah. issue why they're actually holding this tryout in the first place. 
Right. Well, apparently the former starter was this kid, Austin Harden, and he's the he's the guy who now moves up to the top of the depth chart. They're holding the open trial because they don't have a second guy on the roster who can do it. They don't have another kicker. So it was sent out by Gator Recruiting. It says, all call for kickers. Gators are looking for walk-on kickers. Visit the football office today by 4 p.m. to sign up for a trial. They're tweeting this out, which I think is such a sign of the times. It's hilarious. But then there's a follow-up tweet that comes after it from Gator Zone Compliance, which is from the university. And it says, see steps below getting cleared for tryout by compliance office. <laughs> Receive your form. And they, <laughs> they attach the form. So the kids actually have to go and they're holding an open tryout in season. I think it's hilarious. But you're right. I, it's probably, hey, get somebody off the soccer team <laughs> to get his butt up over here. Have him dress in helmet and pads. And, and just in case of emergency, we got him on the roster to pull this thing off. I just thought that was a hilarious story. You know, uh, it's something like that. I'm some beer drinking dude that just loves the Gators. I'm sitting in my house saying, uncle Rico, like, I think I can do it. I'm going to go out there and do like the halftime. <laughs> I, I, I could only imagine Sue and as precious as the sec East is to the Florida fans, um, they're probably racking their brains right now with Will Greer now at a quarterback. And now, they're trying to find a backup kicker in case. I mean, <laughs> I can only imagine the, the craziness that's going on up in Gainesville. Uh, the best part of it would be in the event that they had to turn to this guy that he gets to come out of the stands and they need him. That would be the best. That, that really sealed the story. <laughs> Let's just hope he's sober. Right, exactly. I mean, that just adds to it. That's like a Janikowski thing. Like, he, he kicks better when he's drunk. Uh, so moving on here, uh, fi- final story here that I wanted to kind of touch on. You brought this up to me earlier in the week, and first thought when I hung up was like, oh, that's crazy. What is he talking about? And then I go back and do a research, and I'm like, a little research, and I'm like, dude, I think I think Brady's onto something here. At least the train of thought, I think, is consistent with a lot of the times else we brought this up. Seth Russell, Russell is the guy that comes in and is the new quarterback at Baylor. Uh, he's been smoking all season long. And I think a part of the conversation with us in Baylor earlier was like, okay, what do we make of this? Uh, they've had a really light schedule. Well, now they played a couple teams. He still looks exceptional. He's a junior. Uh, obviously, the Baylor offense is like nothing else in the NFL. I, maybe I shouldn't say that. There are a couple teams that are using more of the spread. Uh, you know, even even Tennessee trying to sort of integrate uh, Marcus Mariota there. Uh, but you brought up this idea that, has Russell proven what he can prove in the event that he comes back? It's another year risking injury playing a, a season long uh, in a system. That's not an NFL one. So it's, it's, it's comparable to the Fournette thing. Obviously he doesn't have the age issue where it's like, okay, he's proven everything he can. Uh, he, you know, getting more records at the school and, you know, moving up the ladder in the college ranks won't help him for the next level. Uh, does he move on? Bryce Petty's on an NFL roster now. Would Russell have the opportunity? Would it be the right call for him? What do you think? Yeah, I think that's the biggest question is, is coming back for another year going to improve Seth Russell's draft stock? And to me, no, because I think you face a few things, obviously risk of injury. But you're coming back as a senior where basically every scout and every evaluator is going to have an opportunity to pick out what you don't do well and then continue to build that on the fact that you don't huddle, you don't put your hands under center, you don't really right. uh, make a mic identification to handle protections, your hots and sights, all those things that you're going to have to do at the next level. So it's almost as if why would you want to put yourself, one, a risk of injury and take more hits, but two, being in a system, and ingraining that into your uh, memory and into your footwork and rhythm and all those things, when the ultimate goal is to be in the NFL, and you're not going to be doing that at the next level. Now, you mentioned it. There are some circumstances where you see 
similar offensive schemes or sets, but it's not that often. And Marcus Mariota right. has shown some at Tennessee with, uh, with Ken Wisenhunt implementing some of that. Uh, but I think this more has to do with the fact that, look, if Bryce Petty can get drafted, I think in the fourth round of the New York Jets, you've got to think that a kid who has the size, who has the athleticism, you know, Seth Russell rushed for 160 yards in last week's game and two touchdowns, not only, and threw for another four touchdowns. So this kid's got it all. And I think the favoritism of a guy like Marcus Mariota kind of coming in, being able to pick up a system right away, uh, run it, and be pretty efficient for the most part, even though he kind of went through a, a tough game this past week versus the Dolphins. For the most part, though, I think he's progressed the way a lot of people would like to see and probably faster than they expected, uh, in particular that week one win, going for four touchdowns and, and really looking quite impressive. Get some so, bucks, yeah. uh, I think for, for Seth Russell, there's not a lot of downside, and I don't necessarily know if it would really improve or help him coming back for another season. So why not go play, uh, see what you can do in the, in the NFL, and if someone will be able to groom you and, and help teach you um, that system, that offense, and that style, and come back and, and finish your, uh, the rest of your school, considering the NCAA has now made it possible to have um, those players come back and guarantee those scholarships. It's just such an interesting conversation. It's something that goes sort of against everything in my head that says what college football is supposed to be about. And I'm like, get yourself out of that frame of mind. But then every week, every year we come around April and we start talking about draft stock and I hear how they talk about these young kids. I hear how they beat them up. I hear the things that they say. And it's almost as if the smaller, tighter portfolio where there's an unknown is better for you. Yeah. Like it's like the, yeah. the the promise of what you could be, as opposed to the you've clearly illustrated what you can be. It's like it's almost like cashing in on your potential is a better route. I mean, I, I can't remember the scenario where you've brought this up in other environments. You've done a great job writing on the site about the insurance issue of really all the sort of angles of what a kid would be dealing with. One of the things that I've, it's rare to see, and maybe quarterbacks one of those few areas where if you're in the right system, there are some things that you can make some advancements on uh, to prove. I think in Sean. Mannion's case a year ago, you may be disproved. I think they thought it was a little more than what the senior, the senior, the last season or whatever he had had showed in his game. But I think there are some positions where it's like, you know what, we haven't seen you, we haven't seen you catch the ball out of the backfield yet, or we haven't uh, seen you pass protect enough at this position. You just in a run block offense. Maybe there's some positions rarity where another year proves something more. But man, I'm starting to hear things where it's like almost like if you got a nice little. 12 to 14 game portfolio and you've got them thinking one thing all you can do is go backwards and it, it sucks that that's life but you gotta be real about how they're evaluating guys now and and they're doing that and i think they're deluding themselves in part by thinking that a kid can't change some things because you're not seeing much in the college game that translates anyway but uh, that's how they're thinking and, and you're not going to change their mind so at least it brings up an interesting question i i like that you went there because it, it it's it's got to be running through these kids' minds now. Yeah, it should be, and you kind of touched on it. But you know, I think what NFL evaluators really look for are kids whose ceilings they feel like they the kids haven't reached yet, as opposed to a kid who sometimes comes in and they already feel like he's at a ceiling where they can't necessarily make him right. that much better. Um, that's where you see those kids who really shoot up. Um, I would say the rounds or the, or the the draft rankings, what have you, because people look at him and say, like you had talked about, look at the potential or look at the upside of this guy. Um, so in Seth Russell's case, I think you, you have that little tight portfolio, kind of like Mark Sanchez. only started like 14 games in his collegiate right. career. 
people really didn't know what he was, um, but they saw a small little sample size, and they were like, man, he can swing it. He looks like he's running an NFL system, so maybe we can draft him as the fifth or sixth overall guy in the draft. I'm not saying Seth Russell's going to go that high, but I think getting out of that system that he's in now will only pay him dividends in the future if he can just get into an NFL system and show those raw capabilities that he's demonstrating right now in college football. Right. Can't do this. Can't do that. Can't do that. I think you're better if we don't know if he can do that. We don't know if he can do that. We don't know if he can do that. But yeah. he does this really well. It's uh, it's it's interesting. It's I don't think it's a – I wouldn't call it evolution of football, more devolution if that's a word, but just – it is what it is, and you have to you have to play the game as a player. But uh, that is all we have for today's show. Brady, thanks again so much for coming on. Great insight as always, buddy. Have a great week. You too. I'll talk to you later on this Sunday night, Matt. Yeah. See you, bud. Take care. Yeah. All right, peoples. Thanks so much for listening to the Football by Football podcast. That's all we got this week. As always, this FBF podcast can be found for streaming or download on footballbyfootball.com or blogtalkradio.com. You can download the FBF podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the TuneIn Radio app. For daily insightful stuff from guys like Brady and myself and many, many others, make sure to check out the footballbyfootball.com Facebook page and give us a follow on Twitter at FBBYFB. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Football by Football podcast. Football insight by football players. Hi, Lucky. Hi, Dusty. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.